Give it up for our team. My name is Peter Anderson. I'm the senior pastor here at FBH, and we're just excited to uh, to have you. You caught us in the the kind of a tail end of our series called Under the Sun. We've been walking through uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, which isn't something that pastors normally do or churches normally do. Because if you're familiar with the book of Ecclesiastes, it's kind of a bummer. Like if you want to kill morale in your church real quick preach on Ecclesiastes. Um, but honestly, this series really has been a, a fascinating one for me going into it. I thought, okay, there's some depth here. There's some wisdom here. We obviously, we should walk through this and understand the text a little bit better. Um, but man, I've just been blessed by this series and I hope that, that you guys have too. Uh, we're going we're gonna to be in chapter nine today. Um, and so you can go ahead and find that spot in your Bibles, uh, go to chapter nine. And then next week we're finishing up with chapter 12. And so I know for you type A people, you're like, hold up. We were in seven last week. You're telling me we're skipping an entire chapter to go to nine and then we're going to skip two more chapters to go to 12. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm telling you. So get over it. Um, but, uh, uh, a week and a half ago, me and my family, we went to, uh, we went to Yosemite. We actually pulled the boys out of school and, uh, we had some friends coming, um, from, from Apple Valley who had never been to Yosemite before. And so they were like, Hey, we're going to Yosemite. We'd love it if you guys could come with us. And I'm like, that's a good enough reason for me to not go to school and not go to work. So we did. Um, and, uh, and we headed up there and we we're like, man, this is going to be awesome. It's going to be great. Um, but as we were looking at the forecast, we were like, Oh man, it's going to rain. And so my only hope was, okay, hopefully there's like some higher clouds, right? So, uh, the, my friends who had never been to Yosemite before could actually see Yosemite. Um, so we got there, we pulled in through tunnel view and we parked and you could see nothing. I mean, just a sheet of white. It, I, I got out. I was like, guys, I am so sorry. I promise Yosemite is really pretty. And they're like, yeah, cool, man. Is that vaguely a waterfall over there to the right? I'm like, yeah, that's Bridal Falls. That's, isn't it beautiful? They're like, I think it is. You know, they couldn't see anything. Um, and so it just poured on us all day. Actually, I think the Yosemite Valley got like an inch and a half of rain that day that we were there. Um, and so we shut it down at like one o'clock. We, between the three couples that were there, we had over 11 kids with us too. Um, and so you talk about a fun day, let's go to a place where you can't see any of the grandeur and just get wet at the same time. And also let's bring 11 kids and have one of them fall into a Creek, man, it was awesome. Such a good day. It wasn't one of my kids though. So I can laugh about it. Um, and the kid who it was, he was not surprised. He's like, is it, is it Ian? Yeah, it was Ian. Yeah, of course it was Ian. Um, but anyway, so we shut it down at like one o'clock, maybe one, yeah, about one o'clock. We were like, you know what? We like, we, we hiked up to a couple waterfalls. We saw Yosemite up close, but there wasn't just the grandeur and the kids were soaked and miserable and all that stuff. And so we, uh, so we left, we drove back to Oakhurst. There's this little pizza place in Oakhurst that, that Sarah and I usually go to with the boys. Um, and so we all went there. And because we hadn't been with each other as couples, we were in a small group together at one point. And so like, these are, these aren't just friends. These are, this is family, right? So they're really, really close with us. And so we just wanted to sit and talk and be with each other. Well, that's, that's kind of difficult to do with 11 kids in a pizza place as you're trying to have conversations, right? Also, no kid was older than nine years old. Okay. So there's zero responsibility happening at this juncture. Um, and so our one saving grace was is that there was like this, this fenced off little arcade area, right? Parents, you're familiar. Okay. Um, and so what we decided was like, look, 
I will straight up bribe my kids to leave me alone, right? And so I just kept feeding quarter after quarter after quarter to our kids and sending them in that room. And we ended up getting to talk for about two hours or so. But, but uh, one of the interesting that would, things that would happen, and I'm sure you guys are all familiar with this, is our kid would put in a quarter. And then the machine would, of course, eat my quarter, right? And so then my kids would come back, Dad, the machine ate my quarter. I was like, well, what machine did you put it in? They tell me the machine they put it in. They go back, and what would they do? Put it back in the same machine, right? And the machine ate my quarter again. I'm like, hey, stop feeding that machine your money. Obviously, you're not getting out of it what you think you should be getting out of it, right? But we just kept pumping money into our kids to be able to give them things to do over and over and over again. Um, they would pay for something and they would get out the prize that they would assume that they're promised most of the time, right? And so that's really what we're going to be talking about today is that we have an understanding about what life is supposed to give back to us. We think that if we give the proper currency, life owes us a prize in some way, shape, or form. Oftentimes we think of if you're a good person, if we love God, if we do our best, then your life should go well. Our life should go well. But if you're a bad person and you hate God and you're undisciplined and you're lazy, then your life shouldn't go well. And that's generally the way that we think. The better you are, the better your life should go. That's our understanding. That's our assumption. But here's how life actually seems to work for any of you based in reality or for any of you who've lived life for any matter of time is if you're a good person and if you love God and you do your best, all kinds of bad things tend to still happen to you. It doesn't matter what it is that you do. And Ecclesiastes seems to continually drive at this. I know all kinds of people who deserve bad things, but their lives tend to be going pretty well. And on the other hand, I know people who seem to do everything right, but they seem to have nothing but trouble over and over and over again. Every meet, every, every week I meet with good people who live well, but face huge problems in their life. Sickness, unemployment, burnout, family problems, you name it, I've talked about it. And these are people who are good People, people who are righteous people, the way that Ecclesiastes talks about it. So in contrast to the, to the way that I would expect life to work, here's what life is actually like. It's like when you go to a candy machine, you put in your money and nothing happens. That's really what Ecclesiastes is driving towards. It doesn't matter what you do because the machine ultimately gets to decide your lot in life. That's what, that's what happens on a consistent basis. And as we've been studying in the, the book of Ecclesiastes, this teacher, Solomon, has been trying to draw numerous conclusions. He's observed life, and he wants us to confront the hard reality before he tells us what we should do. The passage confronts us with the hard reality of how little we know and the vast extent of what we can't handle we need to recognize that we aren't in control and life does not work the way that we would expect it to work. So I'm here to encourage you all today <laughs> because that's a real downer message. It doesn't matter. And that's what Ecclesiastes consistently pushes towards. So really what we need to understand, and this is your first point, is righteous and unrighteous men have the same lot. 
Righteous and unrighteous men have the same lot. Meaning, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you do. Good things or bad things don't accumulate based on your behavior. It doesn't matter what it is that you do. It simply doesn't matter. And Solomon tells us that in the first three verses of chapter 9. They say this. So I reflected on all of this. He's talking about everything that he's he's talked about thus far in chapter 7 and 8. So I reflected on all of this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands. But no one knows whether love or hate awaits them. Read that part again. No one knows whether love or hate awaits them. All share a common destiny. The righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with the good, so with the sinful. As it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. Verse 3. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of people, moreover, are full of evil, and there is madness in their hearts while they live. And afterward, they join the dead. Here's what he's saying. Solomon's just been examining the seemingly random nature of life. And in chapters 7 and 8, he's been struggling with the question of why bad things happen to good people. We talked about that in a prior message. Why bad things happen to good people. How can a good and powerful God allow this to happen? And as he comes to chapter 9, he says he's been thinking about all this, and he's come to two conclusions. One, our lives are in the hands of God and nobody else. And God is sovereign. For for those of you who are new to faith, we've we've been talking about this idea of sovereignty in the book of Ecclesiastes. Because really, the longer I study it and the more that I read it, the more I recognize that, that Ecclesiastes isn't about man's futility. Ecclesiastes is about God's sovereignty. And so, so for those of you who are new to faith, I, want you, I really want you to understand what it is that sovereignty is because it's a pretty churchy word and I want to make sure we all have a good handle on it before we move on. Okay, so for those of you who know what sovereignty is, you can check out for about 30 seconds, okay? I'll let you know when it's time to turn it back on. But sovereignty essentially means that there are no limits to God's rule. There's nothing that God, that God doesn't oversee. This is part of what it means to be God. Right? If we worshiped a God who wasn't sovereign, what kind of God would that actually be? That'd be a little G God, right? So everything, like, like God controls all of it. He's never helpless. He's never frustrated. He's never at a loss. Whenever God acts, he acts in a way that pleases him. God isn't constrained to do a thing that he despises. He's never backed into a corner where his only recourse is to do something he hates to do. He does whatever it is he pleases. So we need to understand then, if God is sovereign, life is not random. Okay, now turn it back on. We're done with sovereignty. Turn it back on. Now jump back in. God's in control of what happens is what we need to recognize. Even if we can't figure it out. But Solomon also comes to a second conclusion in this passage. That nobody can tell whether God loves us or is angry with us. Which is an interesting one for us to understand on this side of Christ's death and resurrection. Right? Because, because there was no, like, outside of, of faith and the law, there was nothing that says you are reconciled to God. Right? Outside of faith and the law. That was it. And so nobody knows 
whether God loves them or God hates them. If you just looked at the events of life, you would really have no idea whether God is for you or God is against you. As a matter of fact, it may lead you to believe a, uh, a certain belief of, uh, of karma, right? If I do good things, good things are going to come back to me. And my guess is, is that karma largely came from people recognizing patterns in their life. They said, oh, I did good and a good thing happened. I did bad and a bad thing, a bad thing happened to me. So I should only do good things and only good things will then happen to me. We don't understand. We can't understand. And this is what Solomon is saying. If God, God is angry with us or God is happy with us based on the events of our life, we cannot tell if God is against you because life is harsh, regardless of how you live. We cannot tell if God is for you because oftentimes the, our life is blessed regardless of how we live. And this understanding is one of the reasons that prosperity gospel preachers drive me completely and totally nuts. If anybody of you are familiar with, with prosperity gospel, it's, it's the teaching that if you have enough faith in God, he's going to bless you with money. He's going to bless you with wealth. He's going to bless you with health. He's going to bless you with nice things. Anything that you ask for, if you have enough faith and you submit your check of $100 to wherever, you will get all of this in, to, in return. And that's why prosperity gospel drives me nuts because scripture, it talks the entire, read the book of Ecclesiastes and we're pretty sure that it doesn't matter what you do. God's got it all under control. He has it figured out. Whatever God wants to loose, he will loose. Whatever God wants to bind, he will bind. And that's what the book of Ecclesiastes is consistently driving us towards. The opposite of the prosperity gospel actually tends to be true. If you really, when our faith is placed in Christ, our lives often become more difficult, not easier. And for those of you who are here for the first time and trying to figure out faith and life and answers, I want to be upfront with you. Living for Christ is a lot harder than not living for Christ. It's difficult. It's better, but it's difficult. Same thing as working out, right? Not working out is a whole yeah, it's better, <laughs> but it's a whole lot more difficult. Man, I saw this time and time again as a youth pastor. I would go to camp and we'd have, you know, all these students come to the Lord and they're overly emotional on a Tuesday night when the pastor comes up and he's like, hey, or the speaker comes up. Hey, if anybody wants to place their faith in Christ, just, just stand up and we'll pray. And, and you know, I, I had conversations with countless students in that arena, right, where they stand up and they're crying because they only got two hours of sleep the night before <laughs> they they're, they're have been living on sugar and nothing else for the last two days. And there's like this emotional draw to be able to follow Jesus. And so I'm sitting next to them and like, you know what? Yeah, I, I've been messing up in my life and I'm never going to sin again. And I'm going to read my Bible from front to back tonight. Um, and like all these things, like, right. And then I would check in with them a week later, two weeks later. Hey, how's it going? Well, you know, I, I've kind of been slipping into some stuff that I, I didn't want to slip into. Like I said, I wasn't going to slip into a camp and, uh, I haven't read my Bible yet. Actually, I, I haven't even found my Bible yet. Uh, and so, but, but there would just be this cooling period that would happen after people faith in Christ, there'd be a cooling period that happened. And that cooling period really is just life. It's life happening to them because when we place our faith in Christ, the world doesn't go away. The world consistently is there. The problem you are this morning for now minutes, when you leave here, those same problems are still going to be there. 
For some of us, those problems may be sitting right next to us. I don't know. But that being said, those problems don't simply go away. Regardless of the decision that you make, regardless of the decision to follow Christ. Ultimately, and a lot of times it gets a lot more difficult to follow him. Because when we truly follow him, he makes us do things that are difficult. He makes us do things that can be frustrating. He consistently takes us out of our comfort zone and asks us to do things that we never wanted to do in the first place. He asked my wife and I to move four hours away from any family, uh, like any group of people that we knew to a place that we didn't even know existed. And we had to be there for like five years. I knew how the Israelites felt. We toiled for five years in the desert. They had 40, but still, you know, whatever. Maybe they had it harder. I don't know, whatever. But he consistently asks us to do hard things, to take us out of our comfort zone, which is why following Jesus is difficult to do. And you're like, well, what, like what difficult things? Like, oh, sure, you know, I look nice on a Sunday morning, my hair's combed, and I can, you know, go to, go to church, go to my study, go to my children's church, whatever it is. That's all I have to do. Well, how about the fact that we have an Easter season upon us, and in that Easter season, people are more receptive to going to church than any other time of the year. Actually, there was a poll taken recently, I think it might have been Gallup, but 87% of people, people who don't go to they would come if they were 87%. It got real quiet in your church. But that's the reality of it. Right, is that God asks us to do difficult things. God asks us to have conversations. And really, how difficult is a conversation with people that you probably already know? With your neighbor that you share niceties with and you know you, you, you mow his lawn every year's is out or you share a lawn and you're like, he mows his lawn terribly. I want this to look nice. So you take whatever it is, right? And you want to take care of it. You, you know that person or you know the person sitting next to you at work. Or you know the people in your family that, that they always tend to show up for lunch, but they've never been a part of a church service before. They never come with you to church or whatever it is. God asks you to do difficult things when you decide to follow him. That's the reality of the situation. And we need to be okay with that as followers of Christ. And so when he pulls you out of your comfort zone, know that life gets harder. Following Jesus makes life more difficult. It is our responsibility, though, to share with those people, to let those people know that there is hope, there is eternity, it is real, Jesus is real, hell is real, and I want you to be a part of the winning team, because I already know the outcome. It's our responsibility to live well, and that's your next blank, as a matter of fact, is that all men must die, so this life must be well lived. All men must die, so this life must be well lived. It's Ecclesiastes 9, 4 to 10. And it says this, Anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a, even a live dog is better than a dead lion. For the, for the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even their name is forgotten. Their love, their hate, and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. Go, eat your food with gladness, drink your wine with a joyful heart, for God has already approved what you do. Clothed in white, always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife, whom you love, all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun. 
Can I just read that again? Because I feel like that sentence right there really wraps up Ecclesiastes pretty well. Like we could pray after this probably. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun. It's like, yeah, enjoy it, but your life is meaningless. So anyway, and a lot of your toilsome labor under the sun. Verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the realm of the dead where you're going, there is neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. Simply stated, everyone dies. In verses 4 to 6, he says that it's much better to be alive. Of course, we say the living have hope. He says in verse 4, they, they didn't think much of dogs, but, but they thought a lot about lions back in that day. And Solomon says that a live dog is still way better than a dead lion. The dead, the teacher says, loses everything. No memory, no more reward, no remembrance of their lives, no emotions, no love, no hate, no envy, no good, no bad. They will have no more share in anything that takes place in this world. I'm saying that death is kind of a bum deal. It's hard to know if God is for us or against us when we all have to confront the brutal reality of death. And as good as life can be, there's still death to deal with at the end. No matter what you experience in this life, there's still the, but- the brutal reality of death. But in 7 through 10, Solomon pivots. He pivots a little bit, and he tells us what we should do in light of the reality of death. And this seems to really contradict everything that he's been saying about the frustration of life under the sun. But what he says here is super important. We need to hear this. Okay? Uh, we, we, we need to, well, let me give you an example. Okay, let me give you an example. Uh, last year, Sarah and I got an opportunity to travel to Boston together. Man, awesome trip. Sarah and I think like best trip that the two of us alone have ever taken. Mostly because it was just the two of us alone. Um, no, but we went back to Boston um, and we, I, w- I got to see the Red Sox home opener, which was awesome. I'm not a Red Sox fan. I'm actually not a baseball fan right now because Giants. Um, but took you guys a second to catch that one. The Giants are bad this year, in case anyone's curious. Um, But we saw Red Sox home opener. We went and saw Dave Ramsey live. We hiked the Freedom Trail together. I mean, we just, there was like this rich history and this great time that Sarah and I had together. And it was like four or five days. I forgot what it was. But I distinctly remember on one of the days thinking, man, this trip is almost over. It's almost done. And I could have very easily continued to slip into that mindset. And, to, and, and not had an enjoyable time the rest of the trip and just thought to myself, man, this is going to be over so quick. Like, and just had that thought consistently in the back of my mind. And so I could either think to myself that this is terrible. I have to go back to responsibility. I have to go back to work. I have to go back to the beautiful chaos that is my home, that is my home and my family. Or I could squeeze every moment of enjoyment from the vacation as long as it lasted. Not in spite of the fact that my vacation was brief and unpredictable, but because of it. And that's what Solomon's saying here. Instead of falling deeper into despair over the brevity and unpredictability of life, and this is in 7 through 10 that we're talking about, use that knowledge, use the understanding of the brevity of life to enjoy every minute that God gives you. Enjoy every good gift that God has given you for as long as it lasts, because you're not guaranteed tomorrow. Enjoy every single piece of it. Solomon mentions a few pleasures that we should enjoy. One is food and drink. Don't rush through your meals. Don't, don't count your meals as a checklist. 
The teacher says, don't gulp down your food. God made us so that we don't just eat to live. He made it so we could enjoy food. He's provided us with a rich variety. I mean, man, bread basket of the world, Central Valley, right? I mean, he's provided us with a smorgasbord of food for us to be able to enjoy fruit and veggies and grains and meats. Well, grains, if you're, if you're not gluten-free um, and spices and all of those things, enjoyment. So eat bread with joy, drink wine with a merry heart. Psalm 104, 15 says, God gives wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen a man's heart. Then in verse eight, Solomon tells us, let your garments be white. Let, let not oil be lacking on your head. Anoint your head with oil consistently. And the teachers are oil worse of joy. At Thanksgiving, when people were sad, they wore sackcloth and they put ash on their head. And it's like the teacher is saying, get out of the nice clothes, get, or get the nice clothes out from the back of your closet, dust them off a little bit, right? If any of you have been to a funeral that I've helped oversee, like I have to dust off my suit every single time that I do a funeral, right? Like get the nice clothes out, put the nice clothes on. That's what he's saying. Get those things out. Look nice. Anoint your head with oil. Do your hair if you have any, Right? Get out there and enjoy the night. Enjoy your life. That one was for Kyle. I don't know if where's Kyle. That one was for Kyle. Love you, buddy. But he then gets more specific, right? Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Solomon says that we should not give up until we get to the point in which we can find enjoyment to where we can find pleasure and contentment in the marriage that we have. For some of you right now, this is difficult to imagine. Having a good, solid marriage is difficult to imagine. Maybe communication is broken down. Maybe one of you uh, has a faith in Christ and the other doesn't. Maybe one of you is dealing with stresses at work and the other is dealing with stresses at home and, and those stresses don't seem to line up and you can't, you can't get past it. I just want you to hear today that your marriage is worth fighting for. It is worth fighting for. And Solomon's not all sentimental about marriage and unrealistic about it. You'll notice how the verse ends that all the days of our vain life that have the sun is your portion in life at which you toil under the sun. Your life is not going to be without difficulties. So find joy. He says your marriage isn't going to be without difficulties. Fight for it. Find that joy. There are people who think that, that true spirituality is joyless. You should come to church, sit down, don't smile, right? I'm going to pray a prayer. I'm going to sing my song without a smile on my face. I'm not going to move at all because I refuse to let music move me, even though God created it for us to be enjoyed, right? And then I'm going to listen to a message. I'm going to take my notes. I'm going to close my Bible. I'm going to walk out those back doors unaffected by anything that happens on a Sunday morning. The true spirituality should be joyless. We need to sit here. We need to learn. That's all we're going to do is we're just going to learn. And we're going to leave and we're not going to apply that to our lives. C.S. Lewis, he actually wrote a, a book called Screwtape Letters. Shocking, C.S. Lewis wrote a book. But it's called Screwtape Letters, right? And, and it's from the perspective of a senior demon, demon talking to a junior demon, right? And the senior demon is doing his best to try to help, help the junior demon control the person that he's responsible for kind of controlling or manipulating, Right. And so um, there's this there's this part in the book 
where the senior demon uh, is chiding the junior demon because he allowed his patient, right, the person that he's supposed to be manipulating, uh, to read a book that he enjoyed and, and, and take an enjoyable walk and have some tea. He actually says, were, were you so ignorant as to not see the danger in this? Yes. How could you have failed to see that a real pleasure was the last thing you ought to have let him meet? And there's something profound there that we were meant to enjoy this life. Not despite the brevity and unpredictability of life, but because of it. Because we recognize that we are indeed in that finite time, we should recognize also that every piece of joy that we could get from this life, we should do our best to get. How do we do this? How can we live so that even though, though life is brief and life is unpredictable, we can find joy? In the beginning, God created the world. Maybe you've heard that verse before. So that we would love him and enjoy him and his good gifts forever. That's how the world was created. And then in Genesis 3, sin enters into the world and destroyed all of it. But now Jesus has died. He's risen again to save us from our enslavement to sin. That was the purpose of Jesus. We're going to celebrate in two weeks so that we can live life as he intended from the beginning. Enjoying our food, enjoying our drink, wearing our best clothes, enjoying our spouses. Peace, even when things are hard. When we see that life is a gift from God, we'll begin to enjoy that gift. When we see that life is brief, but that God has granted eternal life to those who accept him as savior, accept Christ's gift, then we'll understand that death isn't the end. And we see that God is for us. We'll have a faith will withstand even the most difficult times. We'll find joy in this brief and unpredictable life. There was a, a former White House secretary. His name was Tony Snow. He returned to work after five weeks of cancer treatment. And he said, he said this, not everyone will survive cancer. But on the other hand, you have got to realize that you've got the gift of life. So make the most of it while you can. And that's what Solomon is saying here. And by God's grace and because of what Jesus has done, that's exactly what we need to do. And then he continues in verses 11 and 12, where he tells us that men's success seldom equals their expectations. Men's success seldom equals their expectations. In, in 11 and 12 in Ecclesiastes 9, it says, I've been, I have seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. Moreover, no one knows when their hour will come as fish are caught in a cruel net or birds are taken in a snare. So people are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. And I don't know. A better passage, I don't know any passage that does a better job of confronting the lies we tell ourselves about the way life is supposed to work. You know, if you're, if you're at a race, which, which runner do you think is going to win? The fast one, right? I mean, it's usually the right answer. Who's going to win? The fast runner is going to win, but actually not always. Actually, if you look back to, uh, to 2008, the Olympic Games in Beijing, right? Some of you may remember those. Uh, there was an American runner named Lola Jones. She's expected to win the gold in the hurdles, right? You hear hurdles, and you're like, oh, here we go. 
She was known to be the fastest in the world, but she tripped on the ninth hurdle and came in seventh place. The race is not to the swift. Life is unpredictable. Which army wins the battle? The big one, right? I mean, it's usually the right answer. The one with the most weapons is usually the right answer. Well, I mean, maybe we need to have a conversation with the Philistines and Goliath, right? Because that army didn't necessarily win. He'd won a ton of battles. He had impressive armor. But this young, inexperienced rookie with no equipment, he comes out and took him on and he won. Goliath died. The battle isn't always to the strong. Life is unpredictable. Who's going to succeed in life? Right? Solomon actually talks about, he gives, we think you're going to know, the, the intelligent and the people that your senior year, if you look back at your senior superlatives yearbook, they're, these are the people that were most likely to succeed, right? Or most likely to be your boss one day or whoever it is that, that your yearbook happened to phrase it. But you remember those people. You think back to those people. Like think in your head right now. Oh man, in high school, I thought this person was going to be running the world by now. Because they're wise, or they're intelligent, or skillful, whatever it, whatever it is. But then you go to a high school reunion years later. And who's actually made it? Right? Not the people that you probably would have expected to make it. Life is unpredictable. You are not in control. We are not in control. We're not in control of our destinies. Accidents can cause us to fall short of our goal. Time and chance happen to everyone. Life is not only brief, but life is also unpredictable. And Solomon is helping us grasp that life doesn't work the way that we expect life to work. It's just not the way it happens. Good things do not always happen to good people. Bad things do not always happen to bad people. Life is brief. Life is uncertain. And when we look at the events, we're to know judging only from those events if God is for us or if God is against us. And that's what Solomon is consistently driving at. We need to make a couple of applications here. The first one is to encourage you to really get this so that you're not surprised when tough times come. And you don't go looking for easy answers when there simply aren't easy answers. We know the horribly good people for no apparent reason. We need to stop being surprised by suffering. The Bible promises it. We need to stop being surprised by it. The other thing I want to do is to say that we need a way of living that can face up to these realities, including death. We need to figure out what it is that we need to do to be okay with suffering, to be okay with death. We need a faith that can carry the weight of the type of life that Solomon describes here. One that is indeed futile. We need a faith that can withstand the brief and uncertain nature of life. Otherwise, we have a faith that's not going to be of any use when difficult times come. And we need to recognize that all of these things, we need to recognize all of these things with eternity in mind. Which brings us to your last point. That because we are guaranteed death, we have a responsibility to eternity. Because we are guaranteed death, we have a responsibility to eternity. And this is what we need to walk away understanding this morning. Is that all of us will die. That's guaranteed. What isn't guaranteed is, a, is living a life that is a reflection of our eternity, not our view of 
Let me say that again. What isn't guaranteed is living a life that is a reflection of our view of eternity, not our view of futility. That means we're going to do our best to honor God regardless of the hand that we're dealt. For some of us, God's going to give us an incredible life filled with blessing after blessing. Money is going to be coming out of our ears. We're going to get pay raise after pay raise. We're going to get promotions. Work's going to be awesome. Man, you're going to have like all the kids that you want to have. And then you're going to have all the grandbabies that you want to have. Let's be real, church, like grandbabies are a lot better than babies, right? For, for those of you in here who are in the grandparenting stage, you're like, yep, amen. Um, but, but that, and then eventually you're just going to, you're going to, die in your sleep and you're going to wake up in eternity and then the blessings are just going to keep rolling for you and it's going to be great. And there's other, uh, others of us in here who, who maybe that's not going to happen. And maybe, maybe, you know, you're going to struggle with infertility and you're going to struggle with poverty and you're going to struggle with bad jobs and you're going to struggle with bad bosses and contentious coworkers and frustration after frustration, health issue after health issue. Pass away at some point and meet Jesus in eternity where you couldn't ask for any more blessing than he is going to give you the moment you are with him. Regardless of the hand that you're dealt, you have a responsibility to live in such a way that points people to an eternal God, not a futile one. So, who is it that you are walking with amid futility? Who understand? We have a view of eternity and because of that, our futile lives do indeed matter. What we do here does indeed matter because of the fact that we have a responsibility to eternity. There are people who do not yet know Jesus in your life. There are people who are actively waiting for you to invite them to service with them. Waiting for you to invite them to Easter with them or, or, or your kids' performance tonight with them. There are people who are waiting, who don't yet understand that there is an eternity waiting for them when they die. That it gets better than this life. But the part that we really need to understand is, is that regardless of of the health, we have to live in such a way that points people back to Jesus. We have to live in such a way that points people back to God. So whether you are on the zero end of the spectrum uh, when it comes to blessings or the 10 end of the spectrum when it comes to blessings, you better live like Jesus is in control of your life. Zero to 10. The entire time. Because there's an entire world watching the church. And there's an entire world waiting for us to throw our hands up and say, it's simply not worth it. Life is too hard. This isn't going to work. Jesus doesn't work. They are waiting for us. Church, imagine what it would look like if we live with eternity as our focus. If we lived with the blood of Christ at the front. And we decided that the good news of the gospel was too important to keep to ourselves. There would be an entire city asking questions about who Jesus is. And why those who love him live a life that is righteous, regardless of terrible circumstances. Then we get to answer that question by telling them that what it is, they're telling them what it is Jesus has done in our lives, regardless of the junk that we have to deal with every single day. Amen, church? Let's pray. Father, we're, uh, we're thankful 
for your son and and we're thankful for for him coming on our behalf and recognizing and allowing us to recognize that life is so much more than futility. God, we recognize you are you are eternal and we are finite. God, we recognize that that our life will come to an end, that our lives are brief and our lives are unpredictable. That regardless of that brevity and that unpredictability, let's squeeze every joy we can out of this life and part um, a huge part of that is how we respond to you and and the blessings that you've given us or the the things that you've allowed to happen to us that we simply don't understand. But God, we deal with it and we we just need to consistently back to you, consistently point people back to your son. And so God, I pray that would be evident. I pray that would be evident this season. I pray it would be evident in our lives. God, I pray that, man, you would just give us a sense of boldness, Father to be able to, to talk to people, to share our faith with people, people who, who, who need to know that heaven and hell are real, that Jesus is real, that Satan is real, and that there is hope outside of the futility of our lives. God, and hope indeed has a name, which is what we're going to be talking about on Easter. That hope is Jesus. And so, Father, if there are people in here this morning who don't yet know you, who have not placed their faith in Christ, we close the service every single day by praying the, or every single Sunday by praying the ABCs. And so with heads still bowed and eyes still closed, if you want to allow Jesus to be Lord of your life, I would just repeat after me. I'd say, A, Father, I admit I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. God, that I, I'm messed up. I sin every single day. I am unrighteous. I'm unrepentant. But God, I, I, I want to give it to you because I admit that I'm a, sin, I'm a sinful person, just like every single one of us. Romans tells us that. That be that I, I believe, Father, that you sent your son on my behalf to die on a cross, conquer death, and rise again so I could be with you for eternity. And see that I would choose to follow you every single day. Father, that I would, I would do my best to be righteous. And we know, Father, that being righteous isn't about not sinning anymore. But it's consistently doing our best to honor you with the choices that we make in our life. So, Father, I pray that we would just choose to do our best to be righteous people. Father, I'm so thankful for you. And your son, doing the life of our church, we've done in the life of our of our city, our county. God, I pray that you would move in a massive way, and that we could even utilize Easter as that catalyst. Father, we love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Hey, thank you guys so much. I hope to see you tonight at six o'clock for the kids program. I know of at least three really cute kids who are going to be on stage. So we'll see you next week. Bye bye. Oh mm-hmm.